I encourage everyone go and get a tomato and take one slice of tomato or one bite of tomato with just a tomato and it probably tastes delicious. And then do the same thing with one grain of salt on it. And all of a sudden that tomato has been elevated in flavor. And, and just imagine what it would do with anything. All right, food splinter podcast. Gonna talk real fast, spitting food facts while we be no and relax. How to use that salt? What it means to brew with malt? If you need a new food pack, yeah, one that leaves an impact. Tune into food splinter. Tune into food, food, food. Tune into food splainer. Tune into food, food. We got the food splainer podcast. Gonna talk real fast, spitting food facts while we be nowhere relaxed. How to use that salt? What it means to brew with malt? If you need a new food fact, yeah. I am excited to introduce to all my food splainers a very special guest who's a well-respected and passionate salt-making prodigy. Steven, co-founder of Amagansen Sea Salt, started a company called Amagansen Sea Salt. Any ideas where that name came from? That's right. These beautiful crystals are harvested and handcrafted straight in Amagansen, New York. So, hello, Steven. I'm happy to have you on as a guest. Hi, Erica. I'm so glad that you invited me to chat with you. Yeah, of course. So I'm very happy. I think you have a very unique story, and I think it's going to give people a glimpse into the salt world that they didn't know existed. Great. So you are the CEO and co-founder of Amagansen Sea Salt, and you run it with your partner and wife, correct? That's right. You both used to be lawyers? We both used to be lawyers. I left the field of, of law um, after doing that for about a dozen years, and I was uh, a real estate developer for about another dozen years. Wow, that's, that's a turn of events. So what inspired the both of you to take the interesting career path to the art of producing craft salt? And how in the world did you turn it from a hobby to producing a whopping at seven tons of craft salt a year? Well, thank you for asking me. I, I turned to, and maybe I'll start off as how we turned to hobby. Um, we came across salt making in some of our travels down in, in South America and Latin America, um, salt works in Europe. I just found it fascinating. And for about 30 years, about 30 years ago, um, I started tinkering. It was a nice little hobby. It was something to do. It was another reason to get into the ocean uh, on, on a on, almost a weekly basis year round. Um, and it just kept me busy. Then about 10, 12 years ago, we had a little thing that we referred to as the recession. And um, at right. that point, um, at that point, at least my world changed a whole lot. I, I realized I could lose less money by not doing anything at all, mm-hmm. which was wonderful for me. I was clamming a whole lot and fishing a whole lot. Didn't make Natalie, my wife, all that happy who told me it was time to do something and keep my mind working. Was this like uh, a midlife crisis thing? Um, I don't know if I had a single midlife crisis, or this was one of many. A lot, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of different, a uh, lot of different events, and I guess this really was the start of my third profession. 
it was I was having fun, but I was instructed that it was time to do something and and keep my mind going. And um, and it was Natalie's idea that maybe there was something in the salt making hobby around so that cool. time. Around that time, you know, we were certainly we were living both in Manhattan, uh, going out and eating a whole lot. And uh, and around that time, uh, I think both of us started pay, uh, paying more attention to ingredients. Mm-hmm. And one of those ingredients was was salt. And, um, you know, we knew that we were making a good salt. And, um, and Natalie really thought maybe there was an opportunity for a business here. So I, I was game. I wasn't doing anything better. And, um, okay. and launched on about a year and a half period of time to sort of figure out how to take my hobby production of maybe a pound a month and grow it into something that I thought a business, a real business had to, had to be. Okay. That is a very fascinating story. So, so to recap, you're saying that you loved the ocean. Salt gave you an excuse to be in the water and you and your wife loved to go out to eat and you started to appreciate the finer, higher quality, maybe simple, but chef crafted meals that made you realize that the star of the show really is the salt. Well, I think then still to this day that, and maybe I'm just modest or humble, I always think that our salt is part, is there to make the other players taste better. Right. Certainly salt has its own flavors and, and certainly texture and certainly visual appeal. But to me, it was, and it still is, it's there not to lend its own flavor, but Correct. to but to bring out the the flavors of the other foods. I totally agree. Now, Stephen, I was just talking about this in my previous podcast. I had a, a friend who was asking me questions about how to use salt and just basic questions. He's an amateur cook. And I told him, I said, now, when you have food, and let's say you are sourcing your produce from you know, the right way from a local farmer and they have high quality products, then you're dealing with vegetables and all sorts of proteins and things that really do speak for themselves. They don't need much help, right? They need a very delicate cooking technique. And then all you really need is a little bit of salt. Yeah. You know, it's to to me, it's remarkable of how many cooks, both amateur and professional have wonderful technique and mm-hmm. everything is cooked, you know, cooked to perfection, not overdone, not underdone, beautiful presentations, but too many times it's simply flat and right. it just takes that little boost of salt to, to bring out, to bring out the food, to bring out the flavor. Right. And, and that's where, that's where cooking comes into play. It's like you have to cook more to understand how to taste food and how to develop your palate for seasoning food properly. And that is the responsibility of salt. Salt is what seasons something perfectly. And I think it just has to do with education to get people to season their food properly. And and maybe Erica, you know, why is, and and I don't know, why do chefs and critics and so forth refer to it as seasoning? Your food is is under seasoned why don't they just simplify things and say you need a little more salt on it i'm glad you asked that that's also something i touched on in my previous episode 
which you are welcome to listen to. But to give you a short answer, basically, when you are in the kitchen and you grow up working in kitchens and you are learning how to cook and you're working alongside chefs that you respect, you are taught that your food needs to be well-balanced. And that has to do with not just salt, but salt and acid, because those two things go hand in hand. Okay. So let's talk about guacamole. Do you like guac? Tremendously. Okay. So how do you like bland guac? I don't like bland guac. I needed needed to have some punch to... Exactly. The punch is from acid. So I add probably about two full limes in my guac. Okay? So that's the acid point. Now, to balance that acidity out and to let the other natural flavors come out, I add salt. Now, you can't add too much salt. If you add too much salt, it's going to decrease the acidity and then you'll you'll find you're adding more acid more lime juice. And so it's really about a precious balance of these two ingredients, salt and acid. And that is how you season your food. That's why you hear chefs talk about it's under seasoned. Oh, it's it's over seasoned. It's not talking about other spices like paprika and cumin and cayenne. It's literally talking about salt and acid. Makes perfect sense. Thanks for the explanation. Of course. So Stephen, You know, when you have a recipe that you've spent years perfecting, you want to keep every little detail of the process confidential, correct? You want to protect what you've worked so hard to build. Right. Just like Heinz Ketchup won't share their perfect recipe with Hunts and vice versa, you know, they'll list the ingredients on the bottle. Oh, high fructose corn syrup, onion powder, maltodextrin, blah, blah, blah. But there's no telling even by that how the product is made. You know, so people may not think about it, but this same philosophy occurs in the salt making industry and so many other specialty products. So to be respectful, instead of asking for, you know, the exact process of making your salt, can you just tell us what makes your salt special? Like, how does it differ from other sea salts in the store that are pricey and that people might think, oh, this is fancy salt? Good question. You know, I I certainly know the how how we come into how we arrive at the price decision um but i think from from someone who's going to be using it it's really three things or what makes the difference and what differentiates the salt first it's flavor it's it's what is what does your mouth tell you it's tasting like then there's the visual aspect salts don't all look the same there's our our eyes are telling us different inputs and it's affecting what our brain is going to be telling us. And then I think the, the last one is the textures. What does it feel like in your mouth? Is it complimentary? Is it pleasant? Is it, is it unpleasant? And I think that we've come across, or rather we've, we've harnessed what, the nat- what nature has been giving us, um, this wonderful combination of a tremendously flavorful, briny salt that looks beautiful and just feels great in your mouth. So are you taking actual salt water from the Atlantic Ocean? Exactly. We're going into the ocean. We do this year-round. Uh, Amagansett near Long Island has four seasons. Right now, We are. It's, it's now October, and the water is starting to get cold. So I'm thinking about it's time to put on the waders and, uh, and, and, and at least wear a hat. Um, but we're going to the ocean and we're getting seawater. And that the seawater is the raw material. 
So making salt is extremely temperamental, correct? Like it's not just every day you can go and make a perfect batch of salt. No, it's not. People, people ask us constantly, oh, so, so you're just going into the ocean and just getting water and evaporating it. And it's hard to really disagree that, yes, that's what we're doing, but it's not that simple. It's just, it's, it's just like, how do you grow the perfect tomato or how do you, right. how do you grow a wonderful chicken? It's, yes, you plant a tomato seed in the ground and three months later you have a tomato, but not all tomatoes taste the same. No, there's they taste of, very different. There's, it's the nuance. It's, we, we tend to, after we take, after we collect the water, we put it through a filtering process and then we, we're tending the water like a crop. I'm probably touching the water. We're probably playing with the water and, and balancing uh, and balancing the evaporation, managing the evaporation product as frequently, if, if not more frequently than the farmer next door to us is tending to his crops. Got you. Yeah, it's fascinating just to understand that it's an art. Making salt is an art. You know, it's not something we are very dependent on nature. It just goes to show how powerful Mother Nature is and how oh. she can predict what what we do for the day. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, when when I was doing this solely as a hobby, I tried to make salt every single way I can think of, you know, running from boiling water to to what type of vessel I was using, to putting it outside. I was using pressure cookers, I was using vacuum pumps. And it was tremendously interesting, but when we decided to transfer or go from this hobby to a business, we looked at the notes and we said, what made the best tasting salt? And we came readily to the conclusion that it was the most natural, the one, the one outdoors doing this, which was unfortunate because it was the one process that we could not totally control. If we were going and getting water and bringing it inside, and boiling it, like many salts are, that's that's really what commercial salts, as well as some high-priced, quote, fancy salts, everything would be controllable. Most things would be controllable. We've decided that this should be done outside where it rains and it snows. There are, it, there are heavy dews some nights, and the temperature varies wildly. We can't control most of that. There's some things we could try to control, but we are at the mercy of Mother Nature almost entirely. That's beautiful. So you have started from the ground up, trial and error, trial and error. And you have learned how to make your salt better by basically realizing that you can't control everything and that Mother Nature is the one that you have to learn how to work with. Oh, yeah. You know, we've and and trying to trying to work with it and feeling and, and and looking to see what mistakes we made, that's where the changes, that's where the innovation and the improvements come from. We've made certainly dozens, if not hundreds, and maybe even thousands of mistakes throughout this process. But fortunately, each one was no nothing was too too major. But every time we made the mistake, we sat down and said, "Well, what went wrong?" And how can we try to prevent this from happening again? Some of these failures we fixed. And our list of the failures that we're still trying to find work 
workarounds for. It just go, gets longer and longer every day. But the result is that every batch of salt becomes better and better and better. Here's an interesting question I have. So are you saying that every batch of salt you make is slightly different? Absolutely. You know, not, not only does the weather change and the ocean changes so that each batch of salt will have a different flavor, but we are doing something slightly different each time. If I mix up the salt water as it's evaporating slightly differently, I know that's going to have an impact on the flavor, albeit it's probably very, very minimal. But I think that's one of the beauties of a natural product in that there are variations. That is so fascinating. It's just like everything else in the food world. I mean, think about wine and beer and coffee and chocolate. There are so many temperamental factors that come into play when creating the same product. And if you are operating on a smaller scale and you have not turned to commercial production, your product is going to differ. I was talking to one of the one of the chefs that we that we supply, and we're very fortunate that a large amount of our production goes to really really wonderful chefs working in really fabulous restaurants. And he was describing to me one of his challenges was making every dish every day taste as good as it could, knowing, however, that it was always taste somewhat different than the dish he made the day before. And I just didn't understand this. And, oh, and wow. He, and he was saying that, you know, if, I, if I'm making a beef dish, the piece of meat that I got from the purveyor on Monday is, is not the same piece that was delivered on Wednesday. So it's going to taste different. And I need to try to make it not identical, but equally tasty. You know, that is a very deep perspective to think about. To think that every single day you can be cooking the exact same dish with the exact same products that are actually slightly different, which are producing slightly different flavors to a trained palate, but the end result is still an extremely delicious dish. Exactly right. And, and I think that, you know, we recognize this and, and we recognize that that although I celebrate the differences, many of my clients look at uniformity as, as a value and as, as a goal. And you know, so, so we, we actually blend our salts from, harvest with, from one harvest together with the salt from another harvest to try to create a more uniform product from, from batch to batch right. to batch. That makes sense. So you're just kind of marrying your different harvests and whether there's a slight difference in the flavor or not, you're going to get a more consistent product because there's going to be a little bit of the last batch in each of the new batches. Exactly. If, if, I, took a, if I took a ton of, if I was making hamburgers, instead of making them from you know, five pound batches, if I took a five tons and, and mixed them all together, I'd have an awful lot of hamburgers, but they all would probably much taste the same. But we're trying to do something similar with the salt that we make. That's beautiful. So, Stephen, I want to touch on something you just mentioned. You said that you were speaking with someone about how your salts are used in a plethora of the world's best restaurants. Now, I know this because I used to work in one of them, 
And that's how I became familiar with your product. But how does it feel? And there's going to be a lot of listeners who don't understand a specific type of restaurant culture that isn't publicized, like Hell's Kitchen. And some people think those are the best chefs in the world. Gordon Ramsay, all the publicity. And it's not like that. Really, some of the best chefs in the world, no one knows they exist. And when I say no one, I don't mean if you're involved in the food world. I mean, if you're not involved in the food world, you're likely not going to know they exist. And so I find it really interesting that there's this whole world of prodigy chefs and high quality restaurants, Michelin star restaurants. And these are people that are using your salt, Stephen. Like, how does it feel to be working and having a huge reputation with, with the big dogs? And how did you get their attention in the first place? And how did that kind of naturally grow into these very highly respected world-renowned chefs using your product? Well, it, and thank you for asking me, Erica. It, it, it makes us feel really good. You know, obviously one measure of success is, is how much salt we sell and are we making money doing this? But having someone who is an expert in a field tell you that you're doing a really good job, well, that's, that's a tremendous pat on the back. It's tremendously gratified. It's, 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 it, it, keeps, it keeps me, at least, going into the ocean, even when it's 40 degrees outside, um, and, and, and figuring out why we're doing this. Right. It doesn't make us sit back and say we don't have to keep working hard, but the search for, for excellence, I think, should never stop. And um, having people tell us we're doing a really good job, that goes a long, long way to, to, have to, to keeping us applying our craft. I agree with you, Stephen. And I think that you just mentioned that makes you want to work harder. And I think that's really what separates and determines a successful entrepreneur from one that gives up when it gets hard or that gives up when it gets easy. And to, to acknowledge that and be willing to keep working harder and trying to find ways to make it better and to work through really rough weather patterns and everything you're constantly juggling. Like that is why I believe in your product and not just your product, but you know, for me, it's not just about the quality of the product. It's about the company. It's about who's running the company. And do I believe in their mission? Well, we we have a choice of working with lots of people and thankfully, it was never our goal to become a real mass market product. We thought we knew that in the in the current state of the world, um, we would ne- our salt would never compete with a two bo- with a two pound box of pressure cooked boiled table salt on the shelf, and we were perfectly fine with that. I never wanted to. I never wanted to be, you know, be, be running a thousand-person industrial operation. I, I'm, I'm happy making a craft product and trying to make it the best that I can, and working for the people who could appreciate what we what we are doing. Right. Um, and I and I found that I found that with 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 chefs as with chefs as well as hundreds if not tens of thousands of home cooks who appreciate good things. I totally agree. And you know what? That brings me to another topic, Stephen. 
as high quality as Amagansett sea salt is, home cooks may feel a bit intimidated to buy it because they may think it's just catered towards chefs. Can you explain to our listeners why your salt is something even an amateur home cook can use and why you even encourage them to try it? I definitely encourage them, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, I think that it is important for cooks, for home cooks to try it because it's something you can actually see the difference for very, very quickly. And once you get down to it, you realize it's really not that much more expensive. Our salt is generally used as a finishing or a plating salt, meaning that one, two, maybe three grains per bite of our salt is applied is, is, is applied as a dressing to foods once they are plated on, on, a, on a platter on your, or on your plate. And it's, it's simple. You know, it's a little, you take some salt out, you put it in the palm of your hand, and you, and you between two of your fingers, you just apply a little dressing. Um, it's simple. Our salt, because of its, of its the size, you can actually see, are you doing a decent job? You know, are, are you overloading one area? It's a pretty easy application. And once you've done that, it's an immediate feedback. I encourage everyone, go and get a tomato. And put it and take one slice of tomato or one bite of tomato with just a tomato, and it probably tastes delicious. And then do the same thing with one grain of salt on it, and all of a sudden, that that tomato has been elevated in flavor. And, and just imagine what it would do with anything. Totally agree with you there. So, can you talk about? You kind of mentioned this a little bit. You said that you can kind of see that the they're like crystals, right? Yeah, so salt salt is a is a mineral, and or or salt is actually a combination of about eighty plus or minus compounds, generally referred to together as salts, that crystallize in the the ocean today. When we were there, is a, is a little bit less than three percent salt by weight, meaning that in a hundred pounds of seawater there's about two and a half pounds of salt that's dissolved in it. Two and a half pounds of salt, salts in the plural that are dissolved in that. And our job as a salt maker is to evaporate the water or help the water evaporate to the point that the salt can no longer stays dissolved and comes out of the solution. And, uh, and the chemical, the chemist would refer to that as precipitating. And when it precipitates, it becomes, goes from a liquid stage into a solid, and that's a crystal. Salt wants to crystallize, um, and it always going to crystallize into um, these different shapes. In the case of a high temperature evaporation, they'll crystallize into these tiny little uh, tiny little squares. You can actually look at them under a microscope or, or a strong magnifying glass. If you're going to boil the water, it will crystallize into little flakes. That's where flake salt comes to. Because we're doing this outside, the flakes is where it's lower temperature. The flakes sort of pile up on each other and, uh, and become more of a three-dimensional crystal. So you're telling me that you take water from the Atlantic Ocean and it is just a liquid, it's at a liquid state, and you evaporate that water and then a solid comes from it? 
like that seems like you're defying science there. <laughs> well, it is actually high school science, and and, and people who have uh, and people who have spent time either around the ocean or even going into uh, in, in, into a fish market and seeing um, and seeing the lobster tank, they'll see it themselves around the side of the lobster tank. There'll be a mm-hmm. little form, little crust of salt forming. If mm-hmm. you're if you're a boater. Um, I, I was talking to a chef who works on private yachts and he was telling me that he would go sometimes and run his hand along the waterline of the boat and he'd c- come up with some sea salt. Um, it happens naturally. I was speaking to someone who was telling me that they spent a large amount of time in the rocky coasts on Italy and they would, everyone would have their favorite little rocky outposts or outcropping where the waves would splash and leave a little puddle of seawater that would be trapped in a, in a depression in, in the rock. And if you came back there after a couple of days, you can scoop up some salt crystals. Nature has been doing it for billions of years. We're just have tried to harness that same methodology and, and making it in an area of the world that's very atypical for this type of process to happen. Wow. It's amazing how we have actually turn it to an art and that we saw something natural that was happening and we decided to dig deeper into it and made it into a, a craft product. I think it's fascinating. People from all over the world and all over history have had discovered that salt not only made one's food taste better, but it was necessary or was one, one way to preserve their food. And, um, as well as to make a variety of other products. And because of that, almost every civilization or every culture that had access to seawater made salt. Salt was being made where I'm located uh, commercially up until about 100 years ago. And probably if you look in the map, you could probably find um, that same history everywhere in the world. Wow. It's fascinating, honestly. It's like I said, this is stuff you you don't even think about, and well, that, it exists. Yeah, nowadays, you know, people, the salt makers from a hundred years ago, figured out it was easier to make it in other parts of the world and easier to make it in uh, different ways and maybe even more cost effective. And they turned their attentions to doing other things, and and then then people like me came back and said, oh, maybe this is something we can have some fun doing. So I have a question for you, Stephen. When I'm making pasta water or I'm blanching vegetables or whatever it is, I'm seasoning my water, right? So that it's as salty as the sea. That's what you're taught when you're cooking. Correct. Okay. So how is it that my kosher salt that I'm using for everyday cooking is dissolving with heat and how sometimes when you're making salt, they're using heat like very hot water and there's still these salt crystals are still developing. How does it not melt? Like to me, that doesn't make sense. Well, dissolving and melting are similar chemical processes. When you're salting your pasta water and you're adding salt into it, that, that water that you started with, it was devoid of all salt and it could take a lot of salt. Salt will stay dissolved in the water until it comes up to about a 25% 
concentration. There's a point when it just stops dissolving? Exactly. Wow. So when, the, when our salt is sitting outside, after we've taken the water, rather, from the ocean we, and we're at our salt works, we'll put it through a, a, a filtering process. Um, there's several different stages of filters we use. And here we're trying to not make salt, per se, but we're trying to get rid of the sand and the shells and other sediment. We're trying to get rid of things that might be swimming around in there. There's little fish and there's crustaceans. Um, as well as we're now trying to get rid of or rather moderate the amount of algae. There's a whole lot of flavor in algae, and we're not trying to entirely eliminate it. We're trying to moderate it and trying to figure out how much is going to be there up until the point that we're harvesting the salt. And then we plant the water, and it sits outside, and it starts slowly evaporating as the water molecules go up into the atmosphere, the percentage of just water in relation to the percentage salt changes. Once the percentage gets up to about 25%, the salt just can't stay dissolved anymore. As little kids, we may have done the same thing when we were making rock candy. We are dissolving sugar into water and boiling away the water, and all of a sudden the rock, the, the crystals of sugar started forming. We're doing the same thing with salt, but instead of putting it on a stove, we're letting the sun and the wind go to work on it. It's beautiful. It, to me, this type of process is no different from paint on a canvas. Oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. So another thing I want to talk about is you mentioned how your salt is more of like a finishing salt and you, you touched base on what that means, but does that mean I shouldn't be using your salt to season my pasta water? And does that mean I shouldn't be using your salt to season my rice before I finish seasoning it with other things and before I add fresh herbs? Or am I just going to be letting this salt be the star of the show and let it showcase itself by sprinkling a few of the minerals on top of whatever it is I'm serving? Well, you certainly can use it in those other, in those other applications. And I'll, be happy to sell it to you. Um, you're, you'll, you'll get the, the flavor of our salt is still going to come through. Um, it's, it's just not as effective and efficient. And I don't want to say, I don't want to bring cost too much into it, but simply not as cost effective to do that. And there, nevertheless, we sell, a, we sell a large volume of our salt to beverage makers. We sell, um, wow. we, we sell the salt to, uh, to brewers and to some coffee makers. Um, we sell the salt to a couple of spirits, vodka and, and, and gin makers, who, who know that salt enhances flavors, not just solids on our foods, but they, they, they bring out the flavors in liquids. So in, with those applications, you're certainly not getting the benefit of the, of the color or the texture. You're just getting the, the, the flavor so you can certainly do that, but it's, it's, it's a question of how much bang for, for, for the buck, if the bucks are limited, you're willing to put up with. It's certainly most cost-effective to use it as a finishing or a plating salt with just a, with, with just a sprinkle. In my kitchen, and I have an awful lot of salt on hand, I'll finish obviously with it. I will season my my salads i will season my rice i will season soups i will 
Um, I'll, I'll use it in a whole bunch of preparations, but still for me, because I know how hard we work for every grain, I don't use it for my pasta water. Got it. So it's like a price possession, basically. It's like when you are using something that you work so hard to achieve, you're going to use it a little bit more consciously. I was at a restaurant, at a, at a bar restaurant, not terribly long ago. Um, and someone had walked up and ordered a margarita and, and, and the bartender gladly made it for him. And then, and then after the person left, the bartender came up to me and was scoffing at this person who not only did the bartender explain that he used a, a, a premium tequila for this, for this margarita, but it was like the most expensive tequila the guy had on the back of the bar. And he said, doesn't he realize how much money he paid for something that made absolutely no difference in the way that he was using it? Exactly. You know, when, when you're dealing with high quality liquors like that, that's why people want to just sip it and appreciate the flavor for what it is. If you're going to be adding a bunch of sugar and masking other flavors with mango liquids and syrups, it, it's something that it's frowned upon with bartenders because it's like, why in the world would you use top shelf liquor when you're going to be basically masking it with all these flavors? I mean, the same goes with salt, right? I think exactly. And I, and I think it was a strawberry margarita, by the way. Um, this, the same thing with, with salt. I think that you should celebrate all your ingredients. Um, I, 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 was, I was really, really honored when we were visited by a big name chef at our salt works. And he took me aside and he, and he said, and he was thanking me for, for the product we were making. And he said, I, I, I look at this as an ingredient. And, and I didn't understand what he, what he was telling me. And one of his sous chefs came, came up and, and he saw I was a little confused. And he said, what, what Chef was explaining is that your ingredient is as important to his dish as, as, the, um, as the piece of fish that, that, wow. that it's, it's not a commodity that, right. you know, in, in, in my mind, even though I want to look at it as a supporting character, it, it's, it's part and parcel of the vision of the dish. And, um, and he wouldn't want to substitute something else for it. Well, without your salt, Stephen, that piece of fish cannot taste as good as it can taste. And, mm. and that's, what's so important. That's why these informed chefs are able to recognize that you're product is literally one of the most pristine quality products of salt that's on the market and that's well, why thank you, are you very used. much yeah of course thank you it's you know it's it's wonder it's it's really fun for us to be known in that and i and i recognize that our salt is is not is not for every for every chef i know that the the economics of running a restaurant is it's just it's just a nightmare especially nowadays and that everyone is, needs to make decisions and compromises and try to figure out where to spend their food budget. It makes me even happier and respect some of the people who make the decision to go to our salt uh, even, even more. Um, I do hope that people do understand that, that a jar of our salt will last someone three, four, five months. And although we may not balk at 
paying another 50 cents for a, a better slice, a better cut of, of beef. When you pay a little bit more for that jar of salt, you're getting actually more value for it. Right. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, do you want to make the short-term investment for really a long-term investment? It's like, you know, when you're at the store and you don't want to blow the extra 40 bucks on a higher quality pair of shoes, but at the same time, they get holes in them and the sole becomes totally treadless after a month or two. It's like, man, I should have just spent the extra 40 bucks and got the better pair of shoe. Absolutely. When, when you didn't have the $40 in your pocket and you, and your feet were getting cold and wet in the rain, you didn't have a choice. And I, and I respect right. that. Right. But I think that, I think that, that we, that we should be looking at the experts in our fields to help us understand value and understand what, in, what ingredients make a difference and when we should, and when we would, and when we should reach a little bit deeper to, I won't call it splurge, but make better decisions. And, um, you know, that, and, and in the world of foods, I think that the restaurant chefs, those are our experts and we should be sitting up and paying attention. And I think it's a big responsibility that chefs have to lead us by example. I agree with you completely. And like I said, it's really challenging to understand this whole world, this culinary world and these top restaurants and how hard these people work when all you're used to in your little city or suburb town are franchise restaurants and maybe little hole in the wall, great little spots to stop with local chefs. But it's just, it's challenging to educate yourself on this whole other food world. So I think it's up to people like us to kind of spread the word and educate the people, you know, our everyday people who want to know, they just don't know they want to know. Absolutely right. And, and I'll, I'll point out that when we first started this, I, I had absolutely no idea whether or not we would be able to sell a $9 jar of salt. But I thought that where we were located by the tip of Long Island, which is part of the Hamptons in New York, we had a marketplace that if anywhere in the country would accept it. And I was somewhat skeptical that there would be a great acceptance. I wasn't really skeptical, but I was I was prepared that there wouldn't be that much acceptance through it in, in other parts of the country. And I, I have this image of just being these food deserts and and just you know town after town of, of chain restaurants. And one of the most wonderful surprises that came to me was I was proved to be so wrong. We sell a fair amount of our salt through our website. And it took a short amount of time for us to sell salt to every state in the country. There are places which I naively believed would be devoid of, of, of fine dining and in which we're getting orders from. And it was so gratifying to realize that although not every town in, in the country may be blessed with a, a variety of really, really fine restaurants, there's good food everywhere right. and people who recognize good food. No, I agree with you. And like I said, it's just about really trying to use the people who understand what good food is to help people step outside of their comfort zones. And, you know, I grew up in the suburbs and my family, 
it's not that they don't, they just were never exposed to even, you know, a small restaurant by a single owner who I respected what they were doing. And, and I just think it's, it's hard when you grow up, especially the older you get, the more, you know, subject you are to change. It's just about being open-minded and we need to help you know, our, our friends and our family step outside their comfort zone because they're missing out on such amazing food and, and products and qualities that they don't know exist. Oh, yeah. And if we can share, and if people with passion can share just a little bit of their passion with others, I think everyone will end up being a lot happier. Exactly, Stephen. And that's exactly why I started this this podcast, because it's my passion to share with the world you know, what my skill set is and to help people like you and how you have an incredible ingredient and product and the world deserves to know that and to hear from the genius himself. So um, there's just a few more questions that I want to ask. Sure. So how would you educate people who think all salt is the same? Go out and try. It's pretty straightforward to, to do a little experiment. When we first started this, we were selling a lot at farmer's markets and we would go with a cucumber and we'd slice up a cucumber and we would you know, give someone a cucumber with one or two grains of salt on it and say, taste it. You know, what do you think? And then taste it without the, without the salt. And, and it was remarkable of almost across the board, people would say, wow, that's a really good cucumber. Some people certainly did not find the difference, and that's fine. I don't have a complaint with that, but but most people did. And you can do the same thing at home, and you can go a step beyond, and you can take your cucumber or tomato and put a piece, you know, put a little bit of table salt on, put a little bit of kosher salt on, put my salt, put someone else's salt. Find what you like the best. Um, you may simply find differences and without a clear favorite, which is perfectly fine. But, but realize a little bit of experimenting will help you realize that all salt is not the same. It's not a commodity that's interchangeable. Um, and you'll find how you and you'll, you'll, you'll find how you want to season your foods. Right. So Stephen, you're saying to my listeners who have no idea that there's a whole salt world out there, Go and try. Go to your local grocery store. Go search online and do your research. Order salt. Put it on your food. Do side-by-side tests. Just experiment and you'll find that um, it does make a difference. Absolutely. If you, if you end up buying my salt, well, that's great. If you end up buying another salt and your food is tasting wonderful to your satisfaction, well, that's, that's even better. So, Stephen, another really fascinating product that you offer are flavored salts. And I could literally spend the rest of the day searching through all of your unique salt flavors, like espresso and peppers, garlic scape, and even bagel. Like these are unique. And coming from someone who has a very high quality product, I can only imagine that the ingredients you're using to give this salt another dimension of flavor are also high quality. So um, I I myself am excited to order some of these samples and, and try them. And I think that, you know, our listeners should just go and experiment on your website and just try something new. Oh, absolutely. How do you go about infusing these flavors? 
every every blend has a different method from one extreme is our our lemon zest salt for example in that case we're simply taking our our salt that we've harvested as well and dried uh and we're just adding uh lemon zest we're freshly zesting dozens of lemons at a time and we're adding that into the grains we're letting the lemon zest with the oils in them seep into the salt the other end of the spectrum is some of our wine salts we make a merlot wine salt we make a rosé wine salt in that case we're actually adding bottles and bottles of wine into the salt brine as it's evaporating it's so cool there are blends in between uh, garlic scape is a wonderful wonderful um, product is a wonderful um, part of the garlic plant, which was new to me about up until about 10, 10 years ago. It's a flower. It's a flower stalk from the garlic plant. We'll harvest or we'll, we'll, we'll take this off the hands of some farmers after the garlic scapes are harvested. In our area, this occurs in, in June. And we make a puree. And this little slushy puree, we add again into the then crystallizing salt and we let it sit in there for a little while. Um, this was a lot of trial and error. Um, we keep on coming up with different blends. Uh, we keep on making different blends and we send samples to some of the chefs we work with to see whether they think it's worth the effort. And in many cases, I don't like the results. In many cases, the chef says it's good, but why? And, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's fun, the flavored blends, they add, uh, they add certainly a, a different color to the foods. They add a, a different flavor to the food, and it's fun. So, so much of the salt that we that we sell ends up in fine dining restaurants, which is wonderful. But some of the flavor blends are just so super casual. It's sort of a nice, at least to us, it balances it balances the application of our of our of our salt. Um, right. Our everything bagel salt, for example, it's never going to appear in a white tablecloth um, uh, restaurant, <laughs> but it's really wonderful on the hamburger I grilled last night. Mm, that sounds good. <laughs> so very interesting. How would you try to explain a home cook how to use these salts? Let's say the Merlot salt. How would you use a Merlot salt at home? When we first came up with the idea of the Merlot salt, we envisioned steaks and and mushrooms, and and we still do that. I will um, we'll cook a steak and and we'll uh, we'll either roast some mushrooms or or do a light sauté. And in both cases, on plating them, we'll do a light sprinkle, just a, a dressing of the salt on the top. And we then found with the Merlot that. Seafood restaurants were our biggest commercial customers, and it, it didn't make that much sense to me until I asked one of the chefs why, and he sent me a photograph of this gorgeous seared scallop with about a half a dozen grains of our salt on top. I think we have wow. that picture on our on our website, and a picture was worth a thousand words. Just totally. by the look of it, it was so appealing and appetizing. I knew it was going to taste wonderful, even without putting in my mouth. That is so cool, Stephen. I bet it feels so good as an owner who's worked so hard and has truly turned his passion into a source of income. I bet it just makes you feel like everything you've done and gone through is worth it. 
Oh, absolutely. It helps us. It helps us to be put on the waiters one foot at a time and keep on going. It's very, very gratifying and satisfying. Well, Stephen, how can someone purchase your salt? Our, the easiest way is to turn on your computer, go to our website at amagansettseasalt.com, and we have an online store, and our offerings are, are available there. Some of our salts are also available um, through, uh, through Amazon, and we wholesale our salts to a number of stores throughout the country. Um, most of the stores that carry us are specialty food stores. That is- are there any really big ones you can mention, or...? Um, there are not big ones. We've, Erica, we found that our salt appeals to a knowledgeable consumer who understands right. what they're what they're looking for and really does not perform that well on a grocery store compared to or sitting sitting next to a dozen different brands of salt, most of which cost less. So, um, because people, people are not educated. They're going to the grocery store and they, if they want sea salt, they're going for the least expensive sea salt. Exactly. You know, ju- just as and I was probably wrong when I was saying that, that we should rely on, on our chefs for our food decisions. There, we should also be going to our butchers, our butcher shops, our, oh, our seafood markets. There are tremendously knowledgeable people in almost every every corner of the world in, in almost every product who we should trust or if when you do trust them, ask their opinions. And those are where those are the people we'd sell to. I love it. And I think you're you're correct. I think that there are a lot of people and in interesting divisions of our food industry that make up our food industry. That it's not just our chefs and our restaurants. It's think about all the people who have all the products in a grocery store. All of those are owned by a small company or a big company. And then you have co-packers and the people in between. And then you have, you know, like you said, your butchers. And it's just, it, it's a long line of people who make up everything that we rely on, on our, in our daily lives. Absolutely. So, so I think that was a good touch there. So Stephen, this has been a wonderful story to hear. And is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, not really. I think um, know your ingredients. You know, I was I was educated from a um, from a culinary point by um, by my by my mom, who taught me to not only follow a recipe, which is sort of science, but to know the ingredient you're buying and using a finishing salt like ours is just so simple with that good quality foods simply prepared with a little bit of salt just tastes wonderful and have some fun doing it i totally agree with you and oh there is one more thing i saw that you have salt cellars on your website and they are like these beautiful wooden they look like bowls and it's for your salt right well it's yes you know for our salt for for, for any other salt i actually know some people who use them for, for other purposes but this is we don't make these salt sellers um they are consistent with our aesthetic it's consistent with uh, with some of the production methods um we, we we know where they're coming from um uh so we're happy to uh to be buying them and then supporting their efforts um, but generally, because 
we do not treat our salt with any anti-caking agents or other uh, chemical additives, uh, we recommend that the salt, at least our salt, is kept in a jar with the cork on, which is probably the safest for it. But when you're having a nice dinner party, maybe not the most attractive look. That's where the sellers come in. That was my question. So, you know, is it okay to store your salt in a plastic container or a jar of salt? Or do you really recommend something that, you know, isn't going to have potentially harmful chemicals that can taint the flavor of the salt? We, we suggest that you store it in the container it came with. When our salt is sold um, in, in glass jars with natural cork, cork stoppers, um, we've taken a large amount of effort and pain to eliminate metal from our entire process because we think that the, that the reaction between the seawater and the salt and the metal uh, has an adverse effect to the salt. Likewise, we, we think that they, the same things can happen when you transfer the product into different containers. Certainly, keep the salt sealed. Um, salt is hydrophilic, meaning it loves to play with water. Um, and, um, and eventually, on a nice hot, humid day, salt will get very, very damp, which we should try to avoid. Awesome. So to all of our listeners, you have a lot of great options on Stephen's website, amagansonseasalt.com. And I'm very inspired by your story, Stephen, and I'm sure everyone who's listening is going to learn something from it. And again, I encourage you to step outside of your comfort zone and please try this specialty salt and you will be thanking us later. There's not really much we're going to have to say because the quality will speak for itself. Thank you so much, Stephen. I have enjoyed hearing your story and can't wait for others to try your salt. Thanks again to all my food splainers for catching this episode on salt and why I believe Amagansett is such a high quality salt. And, you know, I hope that you learned something and that you take this knowledge and go and experiment with salt in your own kitchen. As mentioned in my previous episode, I wrote a special blog on salt and you can catch it in the show notes or go to foodsplainer.com. With that said, please show this podcast some love. Whatever platform you're listening on, please give it a five-star review and share on your social media. Together, we can continue to spread the word, educate, and inspire our listeners. Bye!